And the faint sound of the banjos means we are back with the Antietam and Beyond podcast. I'm Tom McMillan with my co-host, John Banks. Hey, John. Tom, what's going on? Well, let's talk a little bit of our, well, first of all, our guest tonight is, we're really excited, uh, an Antietam Battlefield guide, uh, Laura Marfet, who's a retired Army colonel. We're really looking forward to her insight. We're going to really focus uh, on the cornfield, but we'll hit a couple of other topics. But before that, John, there's some big news in the Civil War community this week with the demise of the uh, legacy Civil War times. Yeah, it's pretty, it's a sad day for the, a, a sad time for the Civil War community. Civil War times uh, has uh, ceased publishing after, oh my gosh, it must be 60, 60 plus years. And, you know, you and I were talking earlier, Tom, before we started the, the podcast, it is a tough time now for print publication. So to me, this is, and I write for Civil War Times and America Civil War, uh, both magazines, they're both terrific, but it is a tough time for print publications. You, you and I talked about Sports Illustrated and the tough times it is going through. So not super surprising, to me that that it happened uh what do you think yeah it's I, i'm i'm disappointed but again not surprised being you know, both of us being tied into the media business our entire careers we see what's happening uh print publications especially specialty publications that's why when we were talking about civil war times I mentioned sports illustrated which was iconic when we were growing up and now has pretty well faded into the background it, it's tough but but other platforms are taking over we, we hopefully civil war monitor and some others will will, will will pick it up so we still have some of those publications but i think really people are you know the reality is they're getting their news from social media from podcasts and from things like the john banks civil war blog maybe not there but those other places <laughs> yes which which is good so we'll uh Tom, yeah, you, hopefully, hopefully there will be some pl some platforms where those writers, you and others, still have a place to post their work, whether it's the Monitor or, or whatever. Uh, but yeah, RIP to the Civil War Times. Absolutely. And Tom, we also were talking about you recently had a unique experience at the Antietam Battlefield, yeah. right? Yeah, my wife and I are among the uh, uh, Battlefield Ambassadors in Antietam. It's a, it's a great group of of volunteers and they have some really good training sessions at the beginning of each season, which is the beginning of the season is now. Uh, and the other day was we we got we got together at Antietam and some of the talks were on the final attack and the artillery, which were, were great. They're always very informative. But then they took us on, on an excursion to private property uh, to what is the position of the federal guns of position on the Pry House Ridge, basically, that's what it's called. It's right, it's along Route 34, the Boonesboro Pike, but this is private property. No one's been able to get up there. Uh, a lot of the veteran guides uh, were, were just amazed at what they saw. And Laura, I know we're going to get to you in a bit, but Steve Stottlemyre and, and even guys like, certainly novices like me, but guys like Steve Stottlemyre, Jim Rosebrock were just amazed at the view up there because we had not seen it. You can see the entire battlefield. At one point, Steve said, I can see Hugh Irish, which is the, the soldier from New Jersey on top of the New Jersey monument. You can see those things uh, from up there. So so those those gunners had an incredible view of the battlefield. Obviously, trees have grown up since then. So it was, it was an incredible experience to be up there. And I, I hope... Uh, we did well for the landowners and the farmers that they'll allow the Antietam Institute or Schaff or whoever guides to get get back up there again. It, 
it it really was amazing. Uh, we missed you, Laura, but uh, hopefully you'll get up there as well. But I, what, what kind of blew me away, John, was how how the veteran guides were reacting like little kids because they had they had not. And uh, and we we had some of uh you know we had some of our uh, podcast superstars there. Tom Clemens, of course, arranged it. Uh, Jim Buchanan was there. Jim Rosebrock was there. So um, some some people who our uh, our listeners are already familiar with. It was uh, it was quite a day. It was uh, I didn't expect to be blown away the way I was. And it's it's a place I'd like to get back up there again. So it's always cool when you can get on get on that private property. Son of a gun! I got to get there. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll talk to Tom Clemens to get him on there. Get us on there. Okay. Awesome. Your shout connection. So our our guest tonight again. Very excited. Uh, Antietam Battlefield Guide, Laura Marfet, but that is just a minor description of, of who and what she is. Uh, she is a retired, she retired as an Army Colonel after a 32 year career with the U.S. Army, including 12 years with the Pentagon Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, she served two tours in Afghanistan. She's a graduate of the U.S. Army War College. She has a master's degree in strategic studies and a second master's degree in international relations and education. So, John, you and I are only the second and third most intelligent people in this podcast. Clearly, we are we, we are humbled by what Laura has done. And it was a lifelong goal of hers to become an Antietam guide. She uh, passed the test and became one in 2019 and has since added uh, the expertise of Harpers Ferry and South Mountain. So she can do uh, tours of all three places. Laura, we're excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Have you ever Talk been about- to the guns? Have you ever been to the guns of position position? I have been to some of those, not the ones that you went to though last Saturday. They they can really be eye-opening, can't they? When when you get to those parts of the field. Oh, they can. It's so much fun to see the battlefield from a different perspective. We did that last month. uh, The guide group did. There was a piece of private property on the southern part of the field that was high enough to afford a view of the entire battlefield. We could see almost see Hugh Irish from there as well, and that was the southern part. We just couldn't believe it, and and like you said, you know, you, you can't help but act like a little kid at Christmas time when you when you get a view like that that you didn't even know existed. Laura, that's amazing. But before we get into the nitty gritty, though, what tell us about the Joint Chiefs of Staff and what you did, if you can tell us. Well, I was an intelligence officer my entire career. So I worked for the intelligence directorate, uh, the J2, on the the joint staff. And uh, talk about a mile a minute. And um, almost my uh, entire time at the joint staff, at the Pentagon, uh, was spent in the command center, where we were keeping an eye on the entire world in any potential crises that might involve DOD, Department of Defense, involvement. And as you know, the world has not been a quiet place for the last 20 years or so, if ever. Uh, So there was always something to do. It was very interesting. Nor was the world a quiet place, at least in Western Maryland, on September 17th, 1862. So I wanted to ask you, why the fascination with Antietam, and why did you want to become a guide there? Well, I grew up not far from Antietam before I went off to college and then the Army. So uh, the area has always been special, and my family uh, remained here. So when my husband and I retired from the Army, this was home, and we moved back here. And it was always, Tom, you mentioned it was a bucket list item to become a guide. Where that came from was 
when I was in Texas, of all places, in the 80s. A friend loaned me Frazzanito's book comparing photography from 1862 to more current photography. And just the fact that the terrain was almost exactly as it was in 1862. And you you can go to Antietam. You don't have to use your imagination uh, to see what, what the soldiers were facing then. And that just kind of really uh, affected me. And from then on, I was a, a big Antietam fan. And, you know, in the Army, every new assignment, you have professional development. You've always got reading lists, studying battles throughout history. Uh, so you can't help but become interested in military history of all eras. But for some reason, the Civil War always was the most interesting to me and Antietam in particular. So now I'm a guide. It really is a dream job. So any of you listeners out there who are thinking of becoming a battlefield guide anywhere, I would encourage you to just go ahead and do it. And there are volunteer opportunities. So if you want to use that as a, as a stepping stone as well. So That's there are absolutely. lots of places to get involved. By the way, Laura, I'm actually, after we conclude uh, here, I am going to see Frazanito at the Reliance Mine Saloon here in Gettysburg, where he he appears to his fans on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights. So I'm going to go up and have a little chat with him. You know, he has... His fame, so around Civil War photography, is six to seven books are about Gettysburg. But pretty much everyone I talked to who's an Antietam guy who was deeply into Antietam references that book, which was his second book that, oh. that he did in the photography at Antietam and, and uncovered a lot of places where those photos were taken, which has been his expertise. So uh, he's a he's a fascinating and quirky guy. So I'll uh, I'll mention he has another fan. Good. I hope he knows the impact that he's had on yeah. all of our he knows. lives. He knows. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. He, he, yeah, he, he does. Well, Laura, hey, I, we can talk about so many topics, but I know uh, I wanted to talk to you, get you on tonight to talk about uh, the cornfield in particular. We sometimes do parts of the battle. We sometimes do other, other things around the campaign. But the cornfield to me has always been fascinating. I know you just did the the. the uh, prep work for the Antietam ambassadors in, in, their, in our training for this year. Could you just talk a, a little bit about that and, and kind of a, why it's important and the impact of that cornfield fight uh, on the overall battle? Sure. I wonder if I could start with painting a visual map for any listeners who haven't been to Antietam. Can we go ahead and do that first? Absolutely. Okay. Because I know a lot of listeners have been there, but, but, for those of you who haven't, the discussion on the cornfield will make much more sense if you can actually visualize it. So if you can picture the battlefield stretching from north to south about three miles. Now Lee was there first in that battle space. So his defensive line was oriented toward the east because George McClellan's Army of the Potomac was on the east bank of the Antietam Creek. So Facing east meant that Lee's left flank was on the northern part of the battlefield, close to the cornfield. Lee's right flank was on the southern part of the battlefield, close to the lower bridge of the Antietam Creek, which we call Burnside Bridge now. So the cornfield is up in this northern part. It's about 30 acres, uh, smaller than the 40-acre Sherrick cornfield, John, that uh, that you know something about on the southern part of the battlefield. Bingo. <laughs> but that equates to, you know, about a third of a mile wide, uh, east to west, about a quarter of a mile deep. So this is a significant terrain feature. And in 1862, or in, on September 17th, that corn hadn't been harvested yet. So it's growing over six feet 
tall. Now, this cornfield is bordered by three woodlots, appropriately named the East Woods, the North Woods, and the West Woods. They were named after the battle, according to where they were situated uh, with the cornfield. Another feature that's really important in the northern, in the battlefield, and especially the northern part, is the Hagerstown Pike. It runs generally north to south through most of the battlefield. Up in this area, it cuts right between the cornfield and the West Woods. In 1862, this road was a straight shot to Pennsylvania, 17 miles, and you were at the Pennsylvania border. The significance of that is, you know, as, as many of you know, when Lee crossed the Potomac in early September, his first invasion of the North, he did not want to fight a battle in Maryland. Maryland was a border state. He wanted to go deeper into Northern Territory, actually somewhere in Pennsylvania, and fight on ground of his choosing there. Well, the Hagerstown Pike was his ticket out of the Sharpsburg area. So he all day long, you will see when you study the battle that Lee, Lee kept throwing troops up to his left flank. He really wanted to get possession of that road or at least leave that route open to give him some options. So because of that, you know, the stakes were really high because of this geography. So Lee wanted to turn the Union right flank and keep that route open. George McClellan absolutely could not let Lee do that. He had to close off any potential escape or any chance of Lee getting away. So Laura, the, the battle opens in the morning in the bloody cornfield, right? That's where, that's where it occurs, September 17th, 1862. Roughly what time, what was the fighting like there? It, it was, was it more brutal there than it was on the southern end of the field? What can you equate the fighting to there, to, to something that happened you know, later in the war or 20th century or, or what? Uh, yes, that is the bloodiest section of the battlefield. But we'll have to back up a little bit because mm -hmm. the fighting didn't actually start in the morning of the 17th. It started the day before. So I mentioned McClellan's army was on the east bank of the Antietam Creek on the 15th of September 16th until the afternoon of the 16th. And that's when George McClellan sent his first troops across the Antietam Creek. He ordered Joseph Hooker's first corps to cross the upper bridge, that's the northernmost of the three bridges across the Antietam Creek, to cross and to, to probe for Lee's left flank. You know, McClellan had no idea how many troops Lee had or where they were. They were receiving artillery fire, so they had a general idea where some of the artillery was, but he really didn't have good intelligence of, of Lee's numbers or disposition. So Hooker crossed the upper bridge that was unopposed because Lee at that point, he only had 17,000 troops with him. That was his entire army there at Sharpsburg on the afternoon of the 16th. The reason for that was the other half of his army was with Stonewall Jackson down at Harper's Ferry. They had laid siege there between the 12th and the 15th. Harper's Ferry surrendered on the 15th, but now those troops have to come back up toward Sharpsburg. And they, the First of them don't arrive until the evening of the 16th. So when Her Hooker first comes across, Lee is, well, he was in kind of a desperate situation. 
So he had to slow Hooker down and he sends some troops up. He sends John Bell Hood's Confederate Infantry Division and Jeb Stewart's Cavalry. And their job is to just slow Hooker down and buy some time. And that results in a skirmish in the East Woods that goes until nighttime. And that involves um, uh, Truman Seymour's brigade. They're all Pennsylvanians from George Meade's division. They're out there fighting this skirmish pretty much on their own, but it involves several artillery batteries. In the meantime, the rest of Hooker's First Corps files into the Joseph Poffenberger farm fields. And when I described the battlefield earlier, I mentioned the East Woods, North Woods, West Woods. The Joseph Poffenberger farm is north of the North Woods. So big, beautiful farm. And that's where the First Corps would bivouac, except for Truman Seymour's brigade way out in front in the East Woods. So that skirmish only dies down because it gets too dark. And really the firing never stops completely. And those soldiers just lie down where they are when they can't see their targets anymore. You know, one little humorous story, there was a, a colonel in one of, the, um, one of the Pennsylvania regiments in Truman Seymour's brigade, Colonel Fisher, the 5th Pennsylvania. And he, uh, this story shows you just how close the enemy combatants were. He decided to settle down at the base of this large oak tree in the East Woods. And he called out to his men and he, hey, for the rest of the night, you can find me here at the base of this oak tree. And, you know, a second later, that tree was riddled with bullets. Somehow Colonel Fisher survived, nobody else was hit, but those uh, Confederates were, were only yards away and they heard him call out to his men. But the funny part is one of his soldiers uh, wrote later that needless to say, for the rest of that night, Colonel Fisher was not found at the base of that oak tree. Laura, when, when I go to battlefields, there are times you try to envision while you're standing there on the spots, what was happening. There's no place, not that you can ever imagine being in battle truly, but the, the, the place that gets me most in Antietam is the cornfield, especially in the years when corn is growing in the cornfield. Sometimes soybeans are growing in the cornfield. It makes it a little bit different. But when you get late summer, early fall, and those corn stalks are, are head high, and you can actually walk through them or imagine what it was like, uh, can you just talk a bit, little bit about your vision of what that kind of fighting was, where Union troops coming through the corn, the Confederates, you know, seeing the tops of their flags, seeing the bayonets, knowing they're coming, you know, in a way that, you, that doesn't really happen on any other type part of the field? Sure. And that gets back to John's question also about how did this start then on the morning of the 17th? So we've got that skirmish in the East Woods, never dies down completely. You know, there's a, a lot of shots ring out during the night. But then in the morning, before the sun even comes up, but now there's some daylight to where you can see some targets, that rifle fire opens up. So we've got that going on in the East Woods. Now, the during the night, the Confederates had taken advantage of some high ground that happens to be adjacent to where Hooker's uh, soldiers were bivouacked in the Joseph Poffenberger fields, and that's Nicodemus Heights. Tom, have you been to the top of Nicodemus Heights? From the, uh, the one of the last times of the Institute events was up there. Again, it's it's one of those eureka moments where you hear about it. You can't get up there all the time because it's private property, but the farmer was very gracious, let us up there. And again, the view, all of a sudden, you you get what you've been reading. 
you can only imagine it and you don't imagine it correctly until you're there. That was my impression. Exactly. Mine too. So for the listeners who haven't been there, hopefully you will get the chance uh, sometime in the future. But this is a this is a ridge that is about 600 yards away from the west of the Hagerstown Pike from the Joseph Poffenberger farm fields. And it is just high enough to give you a commanding view of the Joseph Poffenberger farm. You can look down and see the, uh, the D.R. Miller farmhouse and barn and the cornfield. All of that is just right there. So if you were an artilleryman, if you were one of those uh, gunners, for those dozen plus guns up on Nicodemus Heights, you had what is called a target rich environment. So as soon as they could see targets, they opened fire. Now, Hooker's men had no idea that that artillery had been moved up there during the night until they had enough light to see too. And they really didn't have much notice. I think they saw those guns about the time those were they were opening fire. So the uh, the first casualties of the day will come from that Confederate artillery fire uh, on Doubleday's division. You know, Hooker's Joseph Hooker's three divisions were Abner Doubleday's, James Ricketts, and George Meads. And Doubleday was bivouacked closest to the Hagerstown Pike, so he was most at risk. And you know this might be a good time to introduce Rufus Dawes, Major Rufus Dawes. Anybody who's studied the cornfield probably knows about Rufus Dahls because he was in the 6th Wisconsin, which was part of the brigade that would come to be known as the Iron Brigade, John Gibbon's Iron Brigade of the West. They had already earned that name a few days before Antietam, but it hadn't quite caught on yet. Anyway, Rufus Dahls survives this battle and he writes his memoirs, Service in the 6th Wisconsin, if you're interested, anybody who's out there listening to this, you can Google that and the entire thing is online. And it is so, it, it's written in such an honest, compelling way that it, it's a gift to the generations that came after him. But, but Dawes describes what this was like, that he said, Admiral Doubleday came riding up on his horse. He's trying to get his men awake and up and moving so they can get out of artillery range. And suddenly a percussion shell lands right in the middle of this mass of men. And it kills two, it mangles about a dozen. So these guys, you know, they're just opening their eyes uh, to the day and already there's this chaos among their ranks. So they're trying to get out of there and get moving as fast as they can. In the meantime, now that artillery is going to cause a, a delay in Hooker's attack. So Hooker had envisioned a two-division attack with Doubleday's division uh, straddling the Hagerstown Pike, and then James Ricketts' division moving through toward the East Woods and through the cornfield, through the North Woods into the cornfield. So that would have been a pretty robust attack. In the end, there will only be one brigade moving forward into the corn with the flag sticking up over. So instead of about 6,000, we've got 1,000 men coming through. And the reason for that is from the very beginning, there are leadership losses and other things going on that will cause delay. So Doubleday is delayed by the artillery. James Ricketts, he's got three brigades in his division. Two of those three brigade commanders will go down before they even leave the North Woods. 
One is shot and he's got to be replaced. You know, nowadays in the army, everybody knows the mission. So if the chain of command goes down, the next person is ready to step up. Back then that wasn't the case. They couldn't communicate as easily as they can now. So it took a while to get, it took about a half an hour to get that replacement in. Another brigade commander suffered what today we would call an, an episode of PTSD. When they got within artillery range, he started ordering a series of drills that marched his brigade around as if they were on a parade field, and then he just ran for the rear. So again, have to get a new commander in place. That one is delayed. In the meantime, Hooker's got to get this attack going. So one brigade goes marching through the corn. Now it's still a thousand men. So, and all those flags sticking up through the corn. So to the Confederates who are waiting for them on the other side of the corn, they still know a significant enemy is coming. But your question about comparing that, that warfare or just describing what it was like, I don't think we can even fathom what it was mm. like because of the artillery. So we've talked about that barrage between Nicodemus Heights, and of course, Hooker is going to bring his guns up immediately. They're going to fire to the west, trying to silence those guns. But once that barrage opens up, there is a line of about 19 cannon on the Dunkard Church Plateau, which is a half mile south of the cornfield. Uh, it's called the Dunkard Church Plateau because the Dunkard Church is right there on the west side of the Hagerstown Pike. On the east side is this plateau. It's almost as high as Nicodemus Heights, about 500 feet. The visitor center sits on that today. So it's a, it's a beautiful piece of ground if you are an artilleryman. Well, those guns open up and they are firing over the heads of the Confederate infantry in the field south of the cornfield into the corn, into the North Woods. Well, when that happens, now those guns of position, Tom, where, where you and the battlefield ambassadors and the guides were, they, you saw the view that you had from there that also was within the range of those guns, those big 20 pound Parrot rifle guns of position that the Union had. Confederates didn't have any, so the Confederates couldn't fight back against those guns. So their two mile range allowed them to reach not only that line of Confederate guns on the Dunker Church Plateau, but also the Confederate infantry in the fields south of the cornfield. So, and that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg on the artillery. If you can picture other batteries coming forward, there literally was artillery coming from every single direction, not to mention the rifle fire. So trying to imagine that, I think is it's beyond our scope of comprehension. Yeah, agreed. The noise and the smoke and the disorientation. Laura, I'm here in Nashville where John Bell Hood was whipped by George Thomas December 15th and 16th, 1864. Of course, Hood was at Antietam. So tell us, when did Hood send his men in? And they were they were they were drinking coffee and trying to eat breakfast behind the Dunker Church, right? Yes. You know, we talked about the everything starting the evening of the 16th, that skirmish in the East Woods. Well, that was between Truman Seymour's Union Brigade and John Bell Hood's Confederate Division. 
So the reason Hood was there was Jackson's troops had not yet come up from Harper's Ferry. They hadn't arrived. So Hood's up there trying to buy some time while Jackson's troops uh, trickle start to trickle in. Well, once they do, Hood goes to Stonewall Jackson and he says, hey, you know, my men haven't eaten or slept since the Battle of South Mountain, which was on the 14th of September. So can I pull them off the line and get them some rest and some food? So Jackson, of course, said, yes, you can do that, but you've got to promise to come in when I need you during the, the big battle that's coming. So Hood made that promise and off he went. He withdrew his men to the fields behind the Dunker Church. Well, that night, the 16th into the morning of the 17th, was it was dark, it was rainy, it was pretty miserable. They had trouble finding their supplies. It wasn't until morning that they could get the fires going and try to get their breakfast going. And, you know, wouldn't you know, they get that call to come into to battle before they've had their breakfast, but they're this close to eating it. So uh, the timing is very bad for them, and they're pretty angry about it. They're tired, they're hungry. Now they're really angry that their breakfast was interrupted. And, you know, at that point, this is about seven o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock. And at that point, after a lot of back and forths in the cornfield, the Union troops had started to gain some momentum. They had pushed south of the cornfield and uh, they probably could see their objective, which was at Dunker Church Plateau. If they could see through the smoke, they're probably thinking, okay, we're gonna be there in a few minutes. Uh, but here comes Hood's division screaming the rebel yell coming around from the Dunker Church. And the those Union troops up in the front said they could they could actually hear them screaming for revenge for their breakfast. And there are reports of stuffing half-baked biscuits in their mouths, or they could see some dangling on the ends of their bayonets. And, and here they came. And this counterattack, it, you know, it's been described as one of the most dramatic counterattacks in the Civil War. And it's very successful. The Hood is able to push the Union troops back through the corn and back about 600 yards. So that's a significant success, but it doesn't last. And, you know, Hood, Hood said later that it, it was there that I witnessed the most terrible clash of arms that by far occurred during the war. Now, he's, he wrote that in September of 62. He still had a lot more um, of the war to go through. But at that point, that was the worst he had seen. And what happened was Hooker's First Corps is starting to regroup. You know, some of his troops have the cover of the Eastwoods. We've got um, Battery B, 4th U.S. Artillery, which is it's the one artillery battery at Antietam that takes the highest casualty rates, but they have a great reputation. We even have a reenactment group at Antietam that puts on demonstrations. But Battery B is firing it away at the regiments on the left of Hood's men. So if you can picture Hood's division spread uh, the width of the cornfield and beyond and moving forward. Well, it's smoky, it's noisy. They're not really moving in any synchronized fashion. They're, they're sort of split up. And Battery B is on the west side of the Hagerstown Pike, firing into the cornfield. And among those artillerymen who are firing the cannons is a 15-year-old boy by the name of Johnny Cook. And he was the bugler 
for the artillery battery. And in the course of this battle, he, you know, he's a bugler, not an artilleryman. So the way he could be the most useful was to start dragging wounded soldiers back to the D.R. Miller barn, which was about 100 yards behind the artillery position. There were some huge haystacks there. He could pull them back to safety, and then he'd run up and grab grab another one and pull him back. But one time he ran up and saw that a gun was unmanned. So he decided to to try to load it and fire it. He's all by himself trying to figure out how to to do that, um, which is remarkable. And then he he survives lives to tell about this. And he writes that while he's working to uh, working the guns, he sees General John Gibbon ride up. He's the commander of the what will become a, the Iron Brigade. And in his full general regalia, he gets off his horse and he starts firing a cannon. So they're firing canister rounds into the cornfield against Hood's men. And this is this is a range of maybe 10 to 15 yards, canister rounds. And eyewitnesses said they could see fence rails flying in the air along with arms and legs. So that's what's happening. And Hood, Hood is now overextended. And what he doesn't know is there's a fresh division. George Meade's division had been in reserve. They're pushed up to, uh, to a position behind the northern boundary fence of the cornfield and they're hunkered down and if you're standing at the south end of the cornfield and you look north the ground slopes to the point where you can't see the northern boundary fence on the left side on the west side you can see it to the east but not the west well that's where the first texas infantry regiment was charging forward and by this time they're charging forward all by themselves they keep going forward the pennsylvanians they don't know the pennsylvanians are there Pennsylvanians have been told to hold their fire uh, until they can see the knees of the enemy. And when they do open fire, that 1st Texas Infantry Regiment is only about 30 yards away. So as you can imagine, they're pretty much wiped off the map. They suffer a casualty rate of over 82%, which is considered one of the highest uh, for an infantry regiment in the entire Civil War, not just at Antietam. Laura, one of the things I'm curious about, given your background, I was telling Tom earlier, I've been to Shy's Hill with a special forces soldier and over Shy's Hill battle in Nashville site. And he's looking at the ground and he's going, yeah, that's good for concealment. This is good for this. When you walk the cornfield or, or anywhere at the Antietam, you're a military person. Do, you must look at it differently than Tom and I would look at it, right? I don't know. I think, it, you know, it sounds like you you see it the same way that I do. Just um, you notice those things like the difference that a slight rise in the ground can make. Or, uh, you know, in the cornfield, if you stand on one side, you can't see the ground on the other side. There's a ridge that runs right through the center. So there could be a thousand men down there and you wouldn't see them. So, you know, that made coordination really hard. If you look at a map, it looks like the cornfield is just a flat square, but it wasn't anything close to that. So I guess, you know, with my experience, what I'm always thinking is, oh my goodness, how did they fight like this when they didn't? You know, nowadays, we can almost see through walls with the equipment that we have. We didn't have any of that back then. They didn't have the communication equipment. Laura, as I mentioned to you, uh, just a few days ago, I walked the field at Antietam 
with a Gettysburg guide friend of mine, Bill Trelease. And he'd been there once before, but had never really walked the field extensively. He was astounded at how undulating it was. You were just you were just talking about that. How you know, he had read Scott Hartwig's book. He said it's nine hundred pages. Now I have to go back and read it again because I I <laughs> understand things more clearly. Having because though really we often hear we we study especially Civil War battles. You can't really do it unless you walk the field. You can't really understand it. And Antietam is a place that because it's so open and beautiful and pastoral, it's deceptive to me. Mm-hmm. It's how up and down, how, how undulating it is, and how that would have affected uh, soldiers and commanders all over that field. Right, right. It's really a matter of uh, of soldiers surprising each other all day long. You know, that happens again at the sunken road, too, but at the cornfield, they, do, they don't see each other approaching. The same yeah. in the Westwoods as well. We we have somebody, you already touched on somebody, people, uh, Readers, listeners, myself, love the human interest stories. In addition to the right flank, left flank battle stuff, human interest stories. We talked about Hood's men in the breakfast and Johnny Cook. There was a there was a really interesting clash, though, at one part of this uh, the cornfield segment, where Union troops under James Ricketts uh, clashed with Confederate troops under Alexander Lawton, and they were not only classmates at West Point; they were roommates at West Point. We, we, we know these guys knew each other, but how about two guys who were roommates fighting against one, one another that, that close at the Battle of Antietam? You know, it's that brother against brother theme that that makes the Civil War so unique. And that's a, a perfect example. And, you know, I tried to find out more about Ricketts and Lawton after the Civil War. What happened to them? Did they renew their friendship? And... Um, you know, maybe I should put you and Colleen. <laughs> you guys Colleen, can dig up. Colleen. <laughs> Speaking of brother versus brother, Tom and I are sort of brothers from a different mother. Yes. A little bit. And Tom, I think we have to mention our podcast sponsor, right? We do. Civil War Trails. They're amazing. Yes. This podcast is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open air museum offering over 1,500 sites across six states, including two, Tom, and Antietam campaign driving trails. You can get a brochure from them at civilwartrails.org. And Tom, when you see a Civil War trail sign, what what are we supposed to do? You're supposed to do, you're supposed to take a sign selfie and post it with hashtag sign selfie. And I don't just say to do it. I do it myself. I did one just last week. I was at South Mountain, actually at Turner's Gap. And a sign selfie with the Civil War Trail sign there. So it's fun to see where people go. And Drew Gruber always will repost it for you. So it's it's just fun. It's really a great service that they provide because some of these places you go and there isn't a guide available uh, all the time. There isn't a volunteer available all the time. They really give you context for what you're seeing on the battlefield. And I did a sign selfie in Chattanooga over the weekend, Tom. I saw that. Yes, yes, indeed. Here's another question for Laura. I, I get... When I'm walking a battlefield, sometimes it's it's so overwhelming to to take it all in. You almost have to try to break it into like segments in your mind. I'm curious, how long did the fighting last on the north end of the battlefield? It starts about 5.30 in the morning. So it's before sunrise, but as I mentioned earlier, just enough daylight to see some targets. And that fight, what's called the fight 
the cornfield fight will end about 8, 8.30 when the, so the first core, that repulse of Hood's division, that's really the last act of the big act of the first core. They're out of firepower. Now, the 12th Corps has come in in support of Hooker. Uh, they're the ones that will defeat a second major counterattack, but they will be successful and they will finally reach that objective of the Dunker Church Plateau. So that's Joseph Mansfield's 12th Corps that has to come in without Mansfield because Mansfield is mortally wounded <clears throat> as he's leading his troops toward the battlefield. But they take possession of that Dunker Church Plateau about 8, 8 8.30. But the fighting doesn't end there because at that point, McClellan has had success in the first part of his overall battle plan. So he wrote later, you know, it wasn't so maybe so clear while the battle was going on, but later he clarified what his intention was there for fighting that battle, which was to hit Le Lee's left flank first, then hit Lee's right flank, then send an attack up the middle, split, split Lee's force and destroy it in detail. So that first step of that plan has been achieved. He has pushed in Lee's left flank, but he's not gonna take any chances now of something going wrong up there. So he sends the second corps onto the field. You had Jim Buchanan on and he talked about the Westwoods fight. That's the result of the first division of the three in the second corps that comes onto the field, marching east to west, right into the Westwoods, slams into more troops that Lee has sent forward. It's it's one division and McClaw's division, another division right behind it. So this is an additional 8,000 troops that he's sending up there. And that takes place between 9.30 and 10.30. So we've, you know, the timing is a little bit iffy, but the fighting is still in that same general area. Now also, the same time that the fighting opens up in the Westwoods, the fight at the Sunken Road opens up. So about 9.30, now, now it has expanded. It was initially in and around the cornfield. Now the Westwoods has been added and that that land, that battle space farther to the west. At the same time, those additional divisions of the Second Corps will turn south and the fight at the Sunken Road opens up. Also at the same time, around sometime between nine and 10 is when the Union troops start attacking the lower bridge. So, you know, some, some resources that you look at might explain the Battle of Antietam in separate phases. It's really not that at all. Those opening hours of the 17th, yes, the cornfield area is the only place where fighting is going on, but from 9.30 on, it's up and down the line. Laura, I think that's a point. Uh, you, you made it on the ambassador training, and I know a lot of, we, we have a lot of battlefield guys who listen, but we also have a lot of new students, and I do think that is an impression that people have. That there were there were three segments of the battle, and it's easy to study it if you think it would have happened that way. You, right. The Burnside Bridge, the, you know, obviously the final attack happened later in the day, but we really have three portions of the fighting going on at just about the same time, which would have mm -hmm. been the, the noise would have just been ridiculous. That's right, that's right. And uh, you know, if if Jim Rosebrock was here, uh, he just wrote the artillery of Antietam. He would tell us that about fifty thousand artillery rounds were fired that day. So that is a lot of thing, a lot of artillery happening at the same time all day long. He doesn't know so, it yet, but he'll 
probably be a guest down the road. So. Good. <laughs> well, if I could, uh, since we mentioned his name, if I could share a story that is in his book, Artillery of Antietam, it has to do with horses. And, you know, you mentioned human, everybody likes the human interest stories. Uh, most everybody can relate to the horses. And, you know, I find that a lot of people I give tours to are really interested in how these horses performed in this chaos and the noise, how they were so well-trained. And this story kind of speaks to that. It, it has to do with the um, with Captain James Thompson's Battery C, Pennsylvania Light Artillery. And this happened as Hood was attacking the First Corps. So Hood is charging from around the Dunker Church. You know, the biscuits are, are being stuck on the bayonets. Here he comes. Uh, Captain Thompson is firing from the cornfield. So he's brought his battery into the cornfield. He's firing, but there reaches a point where he's got to get out of there because this is not looking good. This is still in the middle of the Union troops being pushed back. So so he, uh, he you know, limbers up his guns. They're getting out of there, going to the reverse slope and that field north of the cornfield. And he said, he described this later, he said, uh, he, he kept his battery in the cornfield as long as he could while the Union troops were withdrawing, but then he withdrew under heavy fire. He said, blood was spurting from some of the horses. As long as we kept moving, the horses stayed on their feet, but when we halted near the North Woods, they all went down together. In an instant, 18 horses fell dead. And of course, yeah. af after the battle, you know, the smell from all the, obviously the fallen soldiers, but then you have all these hundreds of, of horses decaying on the battlefield. I've read accounts where it, it was truly hell in the days after after the fighting too. I have heard that that the the people in Hagerstown could smell the battlefield, and you know this is several miles, nine ten miles away. Laura, before we we wrap up, we really it's been a fascinating uh, three quarters of an hour. You are a key member of the Antietam Institute. Uh, can you just tell our listeners just a little bit about the Institute and maybe why they should consider joining? I'd be glad to. Since the, you run the membership. Yes, I am the membership chair. The Antietam Institute is a nonprofit, and our mission is to educate the public on the Maryland campaign in Antietam, the Battle of Antietam. And the way we do that is through publications. We publish a biannual journal. Uh, we also publish at least one book per year. I mentioned Artillery of Antietam. That was the 2023 book. Uh, before that was Brigades of Antietam. Maybe some of the listeners out there have seen that or read that. Uh, Steve Stottlemyers uh, from Frederick to Sharpsburg just came out. That's the 2024 book. And we've, we've got more in the works. We also hold two major events per year, a spring symposium, a fall conference, and a number of other talks and battlefield excursions and uh, plenty of activities. In fact, on in March on the 23rd, we're taking a bus trip to Arlington National Cemetery to see uh, Civil War graves of generals who fought at Antietam and uh, some other landmarks there. So there is something for everybody in this institute. And we, we support other like-minded organizations, have a lot of philanthropy and battlefield preservation and education. So there's really no reason not to join the Antietam Institute. We've got 325 members now, and it's climbing weekly. 
and it's, it's antietaminstitute.org. And at an upcoming, in an upcoming issue of the journal, there will be an interview with John Banks. In an oh upcoming fall conference, there will be a presentation by John Banks. So if you want to hear more John Banks, join the Institute. Circulation, That's right. and you know, circulation may fall. <laughs> I don't think so. But speaking of that journal, you know, one, one really nice thing that has happened with that journal is it has given a voice or given people who had an article in them or, you know, had some research in them that needed to be shared with people. And that journal has given them that venue. So, you know, members contribute to the articles in there on the brigades of Antietam and, uh, and the commanders of Antietam, the book that we're working on now, is a contributor. It's a number of contributors, people who stepped forward and volunteered to take on uh, several commanders. So if uh, you are a listener out there who has always wanted to, to write an article about Antietam or the Maryland campaign or write a book, you know, this is a good home base for you to do that. Do I hear the name Henry Winters? Oh, Tom, <laughs> I think you talked about that in an earlier. Oh, we, we, we did, but I can't mention it enough. We, well, well I can't either. I, should, I take every tour group there if we have the time. Henry Winters is the uh, soldier from the 89th New York who etched his name into the window frame of the Dunkard Church. Spent a lot of time doing it. So he, he had a message to send. And I, I like your theory that he probably was sending a message to his brother to let him know he was still alive. So. It's the one place on the battlefield that's accessible to the public where you can see uh, that a soldier has left something there that still exists all these years later, his his name being carved there, which is just a fascinating story to, to research. And, and for, for years listener, and years, oh, sorry, John. No, that's all right. I was going to say for listeners who want to learn more about Henry, go to podcast one. Tom talks yeah, much yeah. more about it. Yeah. Exactly. Well, for it's years, been great, but John, I, I, think, I think John is starting to play his banjos. He does that. When, when he knows we have to start wrapping up. I think I, do I hear that, John? They're they're faintly in the distance. They're getting closer. Laura, can you hear the banjos? I hear them. Here they come. Take it away. Banjo.